Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome on the SASPOD Nasiruddin Nizami, visiting fellow at Stanford Law School. He is the chair of the law department at the American University of Afghanistan, and he's currently at Stanford through the Institute of International Education Scholar Rescue Fund. Nasir, I'm so grateful that you were willing to talk to me today. How are you? Uh, hi, thank you so much uh, for having me here. Uh, um, I'm doing good. I want to start by asking you about what August 2021 was like for you. And um, I, that's probably a difficult topic. So feel free to say as little or as much as you're comfortable with. But what was it like uh, at the time of um, the Taliban coming back? And then how were you able to come to Stanford? Um, yeah, so... Um, um... I don't know if we can have one or two words to describe how uh, August 15th last year. No, you can take many words. Felt, <laughs> felt like, but as short, I would say it was like a nightmare. Um, although um, things were expected as things were developing uh, from start of 2020, unfortunately, um, people did understand that uh, things are going to be hard uh, around that time in Afghanistan. And specifically after um, sort of failure and many uh, um, uh, uh, announcements that there will be intra-Afghan peace talks in Turkey and many other countries, and then those peace talks being delayed around March and April uh, and uh, in May. So people did understand that something's going on and, and that is not good, specifically the news coming out. Uh, in the media, in Afghan media, about uh, um, um, the amount of casualties that Afghan uh, National Army had and districts in different uh, areas and provinces of, of Afghanistan falling one after the other. Leading up to the 15th of August. You yeah, mean. leading yeah. up to the 15th mm -hmm. of August. People, so that was sort of uh, predictable, something's happening, but no one. I think literally no one expected uh, the uh, sort of fall that happened on 15th of August. Um, the, uh, so the, the bizarre part was that it, in discussions that people had, usually you would hear that people expected uh, a relatively longer term of uh, longer ter long term conflict, maybe several type of conflict between Taliban and the Afghan government, which could people said would last for 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 months or maybe years before something dramatically would happen uh um but uh, everyone was 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 um sort of taken by surprise on 15th of august and things happened really quickly uh and and 
and and the situation changed dramatically over a week so it was really a, a thursday i i remember that thursday um um evening the news happened um that uh, uh herat one of the key provinces in the west of afghanistan fell and then um everyone was panicked but people in kabul thought that's a sort of long distance on on friday evening uh, um, there was news early in the morning Saturday that Mazar fell, which was towards the north and very close to Kabul. And then people were panicked, but still people thought a long way to Kabul. So should, things shouldn't happen very early. People were panicked over Saturday. I do remember friends and family going to banks to make sure they can withdraw enough money if something happens, they would have cash with themselves at least to help for a while their families or themselves. And, uh, um, but still people didn't think that tomorrow something's going to happen. Everyone was waiting for sort of a, a, a result for a discussion that was going to be happening between president and leading so-called political leaders, unfortunately in the country. Mm. And <clears throat> people were waiting for, a, for sort of an announcement for the president on Saturday evening, it came up. People thought that maybe there is a sort of a talk and a trip government. Rani was is planning to sort of step down something into that effect. Uh, but on Saturday, um, uh, maybe afternoon, late afternoon, that the, the speech was sort of made public and nothing happened. Same things that were happening before. Um, everyone went home back uh, evening on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, some people panicked, slept late, I think. Some people um, uh, um, tired. They went off to sleep earlier. And uh, to everyone's surprise, they woke up in the morning. Some went their jobs. Some stayed at home. And um, all of a sudden, 10 a.m. in Kabul, Taliban were th there. Um, um, forces, mm -hmm. National Army forces started um, uh, going back to um, sort of uh, to the Kabul airport, um, you wouldn't see any of the military forces around the city um, by 10 or 11 a.m. on Saturday. People were panicked. You would see cars and uh, people just running towards their houses, specifically people. Maybe a lot of people didn't check social media early in the morning or didn't follow up news. So everyone almost everyone had planned to go to their office and they had left for their office. Some some people even in their office early in the morning on Saturday, on Sunday, sorry. So just to clarify, uh, weeks in Afghanistan start on Saturday. Yeah. So Saturday is the first day of the week, Sunday is the second day of the week, and then we have Friday is off. So that was start of the week, people in their offices and 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 everyone was taken by surprise. And people started fleeing, going back to their homes to make sure that they can they can have their 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 they can be by their family side. Of course, no one knew what's going to happen. Uh, no one expected what what level of brutality are they going to face. Um, some people, um, I think, the elderly generation who had. Uh, um, uh, uh, lived during the past time when Taliban were there, of course, had an idea of what's going to happen. Right. 
because um you know this is so typical it's the same movement uh, uh came to power in 1990s and um they did everything they could in the authority to um uh, sort of uh, torture civilians and and take out everything literally um that was remaining in the country after years of civil civil conflict that was going on uh, in the names of religion or sometimes uh, um, uh, maybe political leadership or anything that was going on. Um, but I think the most panicked was indeed um, the new generation who were post-2000 specifically, who went to school post-2000 beca because they uh, they either hadn't lived in Afghanistan or they were born after the previous term of Taliban or uh, um, they, because they were kids during the previous time of Taliban, they didn't remember much about it. Mm -hmm. I do remember getting a lot of calls from students um, from the AUAF and from Kabul University that I talked to, specifically female students who thought uh, really disparate, who thought um, really panicked. And uh, they they literally didn't know what's going to happen. They thought everything they had uh, worked for for the past 20 years from school to university to getting into jobs early careers uh, everything was gone and that seems to be true so right partly... I mean there was that hopeful moment in the beginning where the Taliban were trying to convince us that they were Taliban 2.0 and things were going to get better and I don't think any of us who remembered the original regime felt very hopeful, but I guess it was hard not to be at least a little bit hopeful. I mean, hope is such a, a massive um, kind of driving force, um, but it almost feels like it's worse now. Um, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I think there are a lot of discussions going on on Taliban point uh, 2.0, oh, which, uh, which seems to be a little myth. I think uh, nothing has changed. Maybe they are more smarter and 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 what they do. Uh, 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 it seems to be more sort of cruel than what happened in 1990s. Right. Um, other than that, nothing has changed. At what point did you realize that you needed to get out? Can you talk about that? So the um, it, I was in in Kabul for a bit of long time until I got. Uh, an opportunity to get out of Afghanistan, a fellowship. Um, the um, initial plan was to uh, move out uh, maybe in Qatar. That's the plan that's happening, that we're planning for the AUAF for a little bit of time. Um, that American could University us of time. Afghanistan? Uh, yes, American University of Afghanistan sometime outside, and then a plan to go back at a point Um. um uh, which uh, which didn't happen unfortunately for several for several reasons. Uh, then I had to apply for SRF in January twenty twenty two. Scholar Rescue um, Fund. I don't love yes, that so, name, um, but it's uh, it's just to explain to our audience. Um, it's yeah. um, it's a it's a a fellowship for scholars in countries uh, that are for whatever reason where the scholars are at risk and are not um, either not able to continue their scholarship and their education or they're actively at risk of being. Um, terrorized because of uh, of a regime, and I imagine you were in that latter category that you were actively at risk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so because of the 
um, um, uh, sort of t connection to the um, American University of Afghanistan and the fact that we are, uh, of course, advocating and teaching liberal arts education, which seems to be against the general ideology of the mm -hmm. Taliban. And also because of my work background with the government previously and um, involvement with, with several um, uh, um, uh, projects that was supported by the State Department, uh, that was that was the, the, those were some of the risks. So I got an offer from Stanford, uh, um, sort of at the end of the quarter, and uh, when the paperwork was done, I I went to Pakistan um, uh, around late May, and uh, had to wait for uh, for about two months to get my interview and the paperwork done and and visa, and then. Uh, uh um i uh, came to the us uh, late july and so even, started even though you're on a fellowship that that's um from a american university and is a, a part funded by um the by a government agent a us government agency there's no um um accelerated visa process you had to go to pakistan because there's yep. no diplomatic relations with the taliban and then you just have to wait and hope that's was that was that what those two months were like for you yeah so that's really disappointing specifically i think i was lucky i still got my visa within those within a time frame i know friends who have fellowship um from other universities who have been waiting for almost a year now oh because their visa is under, a, there's a process for J-1 visas. Usually they call it administrative process. Visas are, are referred to background check. And uh, I have a friend um, who used to, who was who a professor at, at Kabul University has been waiting for a year. So yes, there's no expedited process that you can ask for. Uh, and uh, we we everyone needs to follow sort of the the typical procedure sometimes really time consuming and at, at, of course it's energy consuming too because once you are out of Afghanistan uh, then you have exposed yourself of course yeah. uh, on your way outside and if you don't get a visa uh, uh, that means going back to Afghanistan is going to be a, a bigger problem at that time uh, because not many of my friends or 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 not many people knew that I was in Afghanistan and back eight months because they thought something's had happened something has happened and I was outside Afghanistan. I had to take sort of um, uh, precautionary measures to deactivate social media and everything when I was there. Uh, so that was really stressful and really unpredictable. And uh, uh, you know the hard part is that you can't take your mind off it how much no matter you try to to convince yourself let's wait then of course there are times when you think every day that what happens if i don't get the visa you know every process that you have gone through everything you have worked for is just um sort of uh, um 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 under the authority of a visa officer who might say yes or no and you know everything is wrong months of work you go um... back to afghanistan exposed and more danger I'm so sorry you had to go through that and, and just to realize how many um, of our colleagues as a community of global academics, how many of our colleagues are in that situation. Um, so um, thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad, um, even if many people are still stuck in limbo by the sounds of it, you were able to make it to Stanford. Thank Tell you. us a little bit when when before your life became 
completely um, uprooted. What 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 did you do at the American University of Afghanistan? You were the chair of the law department. So mm -hmm. say more about that and tell us a little bit about who are your students and and what does it mean to be the American University of Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. So um, the American University of Afghanistan initially um, uh, was started in 2005, 2006, a uh, law program that didn't start until, up until 2011, 2012. Um, uh, early, there was a course, then it was a certificate, then in 2012, final project to start a law program. I joined AUAF in 2017 as an adjunct faculty, taught a couple of criminal law courses, and uh, in fall 2019, I was offered the um, uh, position of full-time faculty and chair of department. Uh, but at that time, I was uh, full-time faculty, tenure track faculty at Kabul University, uh, criminal law department. Uh, Kabul University is the uh, sort of the largest and, and biggest uh, university in, in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a sort of a hard choice to to leave a sort of a full time tenure track position at Kabul University and join AUAF, which was of course project based uh, because of its funding limitations. Right. Um, but my general idea was uh, uh, that the sort of teaching for a year and a half by then at American University of Afghanistan. I had an idea of how much contribution I could make um, sort of to the legal education in Afghanistan compared to uh, sort of limited authority you can have in an in institution such as Kabul University, mainly because of uh, um, sort of long-rooted professors that are there in Kabul University. Mm -hmm. I have served at, as vice dean uh, at, at Kabul University Faculty of Law and Political Science too for a year and a half, 2017, 2016, 2017. And it was really hard to bring changes into the curriculum. I was a member of the curriculum committee. And I do remember with, uh, 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 with uh, specifically one friend of mine who, uh, who like-minded friend of mine who, um, had also studied in the U.S. We wanted to bring legal writings, a legal methods course, and legal clinic course into the curriculum in Kabul University, and it took us uh, um, weeks of discussion within the curriculum committee to convince uh, um, full professors, full title professors that we needed legal writing and legal clinics as part of the curriculum. And the only thing we could do was to have these both sub subjects and their elective subjects as one credit subject uh, compared to four or five credit subjects for, for other courses. But that was a success at least. Mm -hmm. So bringing, sort of changing the curriculum within, there were a lot of subjects that were outdated, uh, we thought, were not necessary to be offered as core courses, uh, but hard to convince them. So working at AUF, um, I had an idea of how you could bring changes within the legal curriculum. And uh, uh, and of course, brilliant students, it was hard to get into AUF for students. So you had these brilliant open mind students who were, who were ready to learn. Um, I decided, I know, professors at Kabul University would advise me not to join AUAF 
full time because they thought the new track position Kabul University is going to be there forever. But that's mm -hmm. not that wasn't the case for Afghanistan. Probably that wasn't what I was thinking of. There was a generational uh, change of I the difference in ideas. I thought sure. that maybe if I'm effective for a shorter period of time, but bring some core changes that be different. So I joined AUF and. Uh, uh, th that gave me sort of a, a more uh, um, um, wider range of abilities to uh, uh, try to bring in changes within the curriculum and the course syllabi. Uh, uh, during the three years, I, I, we were able to bring a couple of changes into the degree plan. Um, so the um, Stanford uh, um, law program at AUAF was funded by INL through Stanford uh, law school rule of law project. Right. So we were in collaboration with Stanford and working with Professor Eric Jensen. And uh, we had really constructive uh, um, sort of discussions over curriculum development, new subjects that we offered. We offered new subjects for the first time at AUAF, <clears throat> such as international humanitarian law, international business transaction, uh, uh these these really important courses is the um what's happened to the american university of afghanistan uh since the taliban takeover so um our classes before the pandemic where everything was in person the base in kabul uh, so that was the base for the american university of afghanistan students around uh, um, uh, we had dorms for students coming from different provinces we had a wide range of students from different uh, provinces, geographical areas in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. uh, from different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, uh, and uh, students who would come from uh, from provinces had a dorm inside. Uh, so we, we had a dorm for female students, dorm for boys, and then students from Kabul, of course, were able to uh, to to commute on daily basis. Although there was a, an a, a, sort of an attack, unfortunately, August two thousand sixteen. Mm -hmm. against the, uh, the American University of Afghanistan. But students didn't lose their hope. They continued educating. When uh, pandemic started, so we had to move online without any delays. Um, that was late March, half spring semester was then. We were during the spring break when, when, when lockdown started. So we were using Canvas learning okay. management system from early stages, but not fully. It was a quick sort of uh, um, a ch uh, change to the use of Canvas. Um, really hard both for students and for instructors to fully use ca Canvas in an online manner uh, for, for that half of the semester in, in early spring 2020. Uh, but uh, we made it. Cl so classes were continuing online via Canvas, um, both synchronous and asynchronous sessions. Uh, and different courses, we had a general pattern of what what uh, should be followed by each instructor for synchronous or or asynchronous courses. But but so by by August fifteen, everything was sort of prepared. Everyone was prepared for online education. Although we were moving for sort of hybrid uh, classes in uh, fall of twenty twenty, so that was the plan to move towards fully reopening at a point in twenty twenty two. Uh, but when August 15 happened, uh, we were uh, 15 days to start of the spring semester. And uh, everyone was surprised during that uh, sort of uh, time of the panic 
um, students were still eager to um, to continue education and instructors. Uh, um, so uh, a large number of instructors were had either left Afghanistan because it was sort of break, uh, summer break. Some of the instructors were already outside Afghanistan, uh, specifically internationals. There were really limited number of international faculty and staff inside Afghanistan, and uh, uh, a limited number of Afghan faculty to be to be uh, specific. And uh, uh, when evacuation process happened, uh, so internationals, everyone were able to get out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Um, small number of uh, um, academy instructors and from other departments were also able to to make it outside Afghanistan, but a limited number of us uh, couldn't make it uh, during that period, uh, because at that time the everything that was happening it was not individually each instructor it was about family, so the problem wasn't you yourself, so it was a family that you have lived with, and. Um, it was hard to to live live to leave everyone behind in the in danger and just make it outside yourself. So that decision was hard. Uh, I think most of us didn't decide to leave alone, and uh, the, there was no sort of more opportunities to take out others that that were also in danger within the family. Sure. Um, so we 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 were still we remained in Afghanistan. Classes started on time. On September, I think fourth or third of 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 twenty twenty one, and uh, uh, we so that early semester was really hard to specifically uh, deal with students. Um, a lot of students were panicked. Um, uh, we were facing, to be honest, we were facing an unpredictable future too as as instructors. Uh, so I could I I could understand how why students reacted that way. Mm -hmm. So you had to be flexible. You're teaching students who are traumatized, um, students who thought that their education is not going to be relevant uh, at any point again. Right. Uh, they thought that it, why were they studying because they are not going to become able to become prosecutors or lawyers or judges right. or work somewhere yeah. uh, in the future. So it was it was quite hard to talk to students again and again, and I had one on one discussions with with all students. I so from the time that we started online, I used to talk over phone with e with each law major students at least once a semester. So we continued that over the fall, and of course more open. I was at home usually. So I had more time. I used to talk to students. Students used to drop in. And I remember that there were students who would just call and start crying. You know, they couldn't they couldn't say much. So they used to start crying for a minute, for two minutes. And then they would start speaking of how they felt their education, specifically female students. Of course. And then how, how they felt and why they were crying. It was not about their personal life. It was not about anything else. It was just about the hope that they had lost and in, in the future about the education that they are pursuing and dreams they had. And these were really brilliant students. So it was it's really hard to get into AUAF considering the competitive process of, of getting into it and then continuing education and maintaining uh, a higher GPA. And uh, usually this 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 time it was sort of uh, interesting and, and more, more, more uh, sort of disappointing at the same time that I would get a lot of these calls, a lot of these uh, sort of 
questions from my students who had high GPAs because they were students who put a lot of effort into their education. And yeah. although they had done a quite good job, they were sort of mood court competitions, high GPAs in their classes, extracurricular activities, internships, they would try to apply and get. And all of a sudden they thought, look, everything is gone. I, I, why did I work this hard? Why did I put myself in trouble? Um, so initial plan in the early stage was we we got a fund, AUF got a funding from, from Qatar um, Fund, Qatar mm -hmm. Development Fund. I can't remember the name exactly now. Um, so a two-year project. So the plan was to move into educational city in Qatar to have a base, at least for university and mm -hmm. Qatar, continue online, maybe hybrid for students who could make it to Qatar. A group of students went to uh, to AUIS in Soleimania, Iraq. A group of students who had passport could make it to Bishkek, AUCA, American University of Central Asia, uh, but which by now have graduated uh, or have moved transferred to other institutions. Qatar didn't happen up until um, late summer this year, okay. but now at least around, around 17, 70 sorry, students are in Qatar taking classes hybrid. Uh, all courses are online for other students. We have students in, in Afghanistan. We have students in Qatar. We have students in different, literally in a lot of countries, I would say, students who have already evacuated. We so have students a, in the US. That's amazing. Now, the, the students that are still in Afghanistan and doing um, online, are these female students as well or not at this point? Yeah, no, yeah. they are. So it's a mix okay. of students, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's great. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Stanford. What does your Stanford life look like? And are you able to keep up with uh, the research you were doing back in Afghanistan or are you doing other work now? Uh, it's um, it's amazing. Uh, um, uh, specifically after a year, a year and a half of uh, what happened in Afghanistan and pandemic? It's it's great to be back, uh, uh, but it's hard to to, to be away uh, from uh, the uh, society and and family you have lived in. So of course there is always um, an element of hardship in it and an element of, of um, sort of um, um, remembering everyone and 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 staying alone. We come from a culture where everyone dis de defines themselves within a society and within a family. So when you define yourself, it's it's generally a family, an extended family, pretty much extended family and relatives, and then a society that you 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 have lived in. Uh, but uh, in the US, the culture is quite different. So it's, it's you have to define yourself. Yes. Uh, only independent of society and independent of 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 a family, mm -hmm. so this transition is 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 sort of challenging. Uh, uh it's a little bit hard uh, for me. I have lived almost all my life with the family, with the culture, really interconnectedness. Um, uh, uh, I mean, large number of people living together in the same house, always busy house. Yeah. always noises around kids around and then you all of a sudden move to a room and, and you're by yourself that's it so this is a little bit hard um uh from from sort of a, an individual life perspective other than that 
it's 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 an amazing campus and amazing environment, amazing people around the campus, of course. And uh, uh, so uh, I had a quite bit of sort of, I don't know, uh, I'd say um, a roller coaster. Uh, um, uh, um, I I don't know thoughts in in the field of law. I started with uh, with a focus in criminal law back in 2012-2013 when I started as a sort of lecturer at Cobb University. And when I did my LLM at the UW, University of Washington, I was interested in, in comparative law. I, and I got in, interested in comparative law and public international law. So focused on public international law, international humanitarian law specifically, for a quite a bit of time, uh, continued teaching uh, that as well. But uh, there is a time when you start uh, doubting specific aspects of law, uh, because in law, it's it's a matter of theory, then it's a matter of practice too. Uh, there are parts of law which are really developed in terms of theories and, and, and uh, philosophies behind it, but unfortunately really weak when you get into practice. And after fall of Kabul, of course, I, I, there were much questions in my mind sure. as to what role international law and international humanitarian law and human rights play really to be honest to yourself compared to what you usually talk and what you usually study and read. And uh, I was, I was, so I was a member of the penal code commentary committee for Afghanistan. We had a new penal code in 2017, which was uh, sort of, which we became published 2017, effective 2018, early 2018. And uh, there was a committee established to write commentary for the for the new penal code, um, uh, um, which was used of by by judges, prosecutors, literally by everyone. The result was a a, a, a four a, a four different books of commentary, huge books of commentary wow. on the penal code, and I wrote commentary for environmental crimes uh -huh. and for cyber crimes. So those were two crimes uh, which were uh, criminalized for the first time in, in the country. And while writing about the uh, the cyber crimes, commentary for the cyber crimes and the penal code, and of course we had to, so there was a committee, you had to work research and, and write commentary, then defend your commentary in front of a, sort of a panel or discussion, you would talk and, and, and sort of uh, uh, a lot of questions would come in and I really got interested into the relationship between law and technology at that point as well. And, uh, you know, when you lose hope in on one area of law and you sort of start developing a love uh, to, to another area of law, the result is, is clear. So okay. I got interested in, in law and technology. And uh, as I studied forward, um, so cyber crimes is one area that I have worked and I have, uh, I have focused on. Criminal law is, has been my specialization from early stages. Uh, I got interested into, uh, into data privacy, e-service industry, um, specifically consent. So now I am focusing, so my research specifically focuses on uh, um, data privacy, in e-tech e-service industry specifically all these e-service industry that that has over private data 
what they do it it's a it's billion dollar billions dollar uh black market i would say of 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 what of inf personal information of of citizens which were sure. traded uh on 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 a yearly basis so that's an area that i'm interested in and currently focusing on its initial stages of the research uh, are you working I, on the united states or on afghanistan so it's it's more broader it's general okay. because uh, so uh, the uh, of course e tech and e service industry usually they would want to use they they would want to gather as much information as they could, right? Because it's helpful for them, but of, of course for the brokers who might be middlemen in a lot of areas. Uh, citizens, the benefit for citizens is to be as limited as possible, right? Uh, and governments step in to regulate how consent is given, rules on on what consent, uh, how the consent should be. So that it minimizes misuses of personal information, um, it's hard to say to eliminate to eliminate it, but of course to minimize it. Uh, but there's a big gap between uh, the standard for consent that governments wish to implement, and the standard for consent that e-service industry want to implement. Yeah, yeah. That's why you know when you have regulations such as uh, GDPR in the EU. Uh, which puts really restrictive uh, standard on the element of consent, uh, then um, e-service e industry wants to find ways to, to get around it. And they still do it. That's why we, we see a lot of misuses, a lot of cases against... Uh, uh, um, so there was a recent case on, on Meta, um, WhatsApp, and Facebook. Uh, they, 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 uh, they probably uh, did not... Um, abide by some of the principles of gathering these information and processing that in one of the EU uh, jurisdiction, GDPR jurisdiction countries. So my specific research focuses on uh, finding a sort of uh, globally accepted standard of consent, uh, which uh, at the same time is not restrictive to businesses, uh, uh, it also protects uh, uh, citizens' rights is acceptable to the governments too. I think initially the attempt that I am doing is how can we find a way where we can get both government and uh, businesses together in finding a mutually accepted way. Because if, if you have one side, if you leave it to businesses only, which the US is doing, it's it becomes sort of detrimental to human rights, to the rights of citizens. If you do it another way, it's the government that establishes everything, such as EU jurisdiction. You have a lot of limitations and it creates a lot of problems for businesses. You know, at the same time that we are trying to protect uh, individuals' right, we should make sure that we have uh, sort of ways for the further development in e-tech industry and technology and businesses. That's what we cannot sort of create problems in. So that, that that the attempt is how we can bring both of these actors together in order to protect the one thing we want to, and that's protecting privacy of 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 individuals. You you explain it beautifully. It does. Um, the way you speak about it suggests that the idea is that the government's on the side of the citizens, and and I feel I need to just question that. <laughs> we do need to wrap up, but I can't let that one go. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I would pretty much agree with you. Probably this is this is 
only one area that I find governments might be on the side of citizens. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) I will take your word for it, Nasir. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for uh, speaking about your experiences that have been, I mean, you you say you've um, had a roller coaster of thoughts about the law, but you've also been through a roller coaster of life in the past uh, year and a half, two years. So thank you for sharing that with me and uh, the podcast audience. Thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity to to share my thoughts. And uh, and I hope that uh, I really hope that uh, there is a um, br- brilliant future for 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 these brilliant students in my country. And uh, and uh, it's 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 lovely to be here, and it's lovely to be in this in this podcast with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. As always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the intro and outro to the podcast, and of course Simrat Mutaru for post production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.